Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast. It's a brand new year and our 10th episode and we can't wait to get going. This month, Lauren met the Director of HR at Hyde Park's Mandarin Oriental Hotel to learn how he refused to allow a huge pre-launch strategy to be scuppered when a fire broke out in the hotel last summer. After the government proposed new maternity redundancy protections, we talk about how to support women returning to work with Deb Khan, founder of consultancy She's Back. And Tim Pointer returns with Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. The Mandarin Oriental Hotel, one of Hyde Park's most luxurious offerings, was on the brink of a historic relaunch last year when it was gutted by a huge fire. In a lesson of agility in times of crisis, the hotel kept its 200 new employees on full pay, engaging them in charity work schemes. I met John Dawson, Director of Human Resources, at the beautiful Mandarin Oriental to find out more. We were due to um, launch in... July, a multi-million pound renovation that has been taking place over two years. Just, you know, we had a very, very robust HR strategy ready for that. That's ultimately led to 200 new colleagues joining us, and a strategy gearing up to relaunching the hotel. You know, first week in July after that renovation, and then it was uh, widely known that on, on June the sixth we had an incident in the hotel that you know was was a was a fire in the courtyard of the hotel which which ultimately led to the closure of the hotel which then subsequently meant a very very different HR strategy we had to put in place and be very agile to to make you know to make the changes we needed to do following that incident. So after it happened and you had these staff and you had to decide what to do what was the process like after that? It was a very interesting day Um, (laughs) that day the main thing was I think the colleagues have to be very very proud that they'd have got every single person out of the hotel in under four minutes and there was not one single injury you know so to get all the guests all the colleagues um, there's contractors on site you know they, they've got to take tremendous credit for that first of all but then you know we, we sort of set step back as the leadership team and we said okay well you know the strategy is clearly very different now at that time we didn't know how long you know the hotel would take to be reopened could have been um, potentially we thought initially three months because the, the fire was actually contained within the courtyard so, so our focus really you know when we sat down and looked at the strategy what did it need to be we sort of looked at four key areas first of all was we've just hired all of these new people trained them ready for the opening is how we're going to retain them you know, and keep our colleague engaged during the closure we didn't want to lose them our second one would be how could we maybe use this as an opportunity to develop new skills in ways that normally wouldn't be able to do that when the hotel was open. And then, you know, I have a phenomenal general manager here that actually started on the Monday before the incident on, on the Wednesday. And she came up with a great idea about, you know, how we could maybe play an active role in, in the community and give back to the community. Because the, the fourth sort of umbrella that we looked at was we wanted to really enhance the reputation of hospitality as a whole and we thought by you know by playing that role in the community um, and our colleagues going out into community that would in turn raise the profile of the industry as a whole and and those were the sort of four key strategic areas we looked at. Mm -hmm. So how did you start to then organise your people into where people were going, some people went abroad, how did you kind of organise that? It was a very very intense week after the incident and you know we're very very fortunate that Mandarin Oriental actually owns this hotel and Mandarin Oriental committed straight away to ensuring that all of the colleagues will be fully paid during the closure which you know certainly was then a great benefit to us that we could actually put this strategy in place 
we looked at two two big angles to start with. The first one was, okay, how can we retain and keep our college engaged? And um, you know, we, we spoke with our corporate office in Hong Kong. Other Mandarin Orientals across the globe committed to taking two colleagues at their property. So that meant that we could then say to our colleagues, we we're going to provide you with opportunities to go and work at other Mandarin Orientals across the world. And my team here on property would organise flights. The other properties would provide them with accommodation and my team would work with other HR teams in providing them visas. The result of that, believe it or not, was that we thought we'd maybe get 30 or 40 people um, <laughs> maximum to do that. We actually ended up with 77 colleagues going overseas, some for three months, some for longer, up to six months, whether it be Hong Kong, whether it be Taipei, whether it be Milan. So they, they came back with some really, really different experiences that I'm sure had a lot of value to Mandarin Oriental going forward, and that really kept them engaged. The other piece was the, the, the charity piece. We came up with a strap line of fantastic London. For those of you that don't know Mandarin Oriental, our logo is a fan. It's an Asian company. Um, so fantastic London, we thought, would be a, a great sort of um, campaign that we could get our colleagues mm-hmm. engaged in giving back to the community. And so what we actually did is we, we, we asked our colleagues what charities do they want to support. And, you know, we, we brought them back to the hotel. We brainstormed in different groups and they came up with a number of different charities and formed project groups of how they could give back to the, the community. Mm-hmm. So they've been working in these different charities and some people have been aware that the hotel's in a process of reopening now. So what's that been like with people returning? We actually put a... You know, a strategy in place where to relaunch the hotel you know to, to get everyone ready again we put a really robust training and development strategy in place I think before I talk about that probably the bit in between was where we got all of these people working on charity mm. and we got all of these people in Asia in Europe Americas across the world one of the, the initiatives we actually launched the fantastic London campaign was on our internal social media app and we noticed mm. that people were starting to share pictures so what we actually did is we created a little bit of a competition to say that when the re- hotel relaunches the two most creative pictures one from London the charity events and one from the mini moves as we call them um, overseas whoever's got the most creative picture would win a night stay in the, the penthouse that overlooks Hyde Park which is a very substantial price <laughs> <coughs> so that created a lot of natural engagement and a lot of excitement across the colleagues we actually then mapped out when they came back a really robust strategy that allowed our colleagues to actually experience the hotel as a guest and what that sort of looked like is it was a six-week detail training program that launched with a program called Move Back that we put together. It was a classroom-based, over a week, lots of guest speakers. And then what that looked like was different colleagues actually experiencing the different food and beverage outlets different times. For example, if you're a bartender working now mobile, on one of the days you would go and have lunch in Dinner by Heston as a guest to really understand that experience and what that was about. But also that meant that the colleagues who were taking care of our colleagues from dinner could practice their skills and harness the skills mm-hmm. from the classroom training, things that they've been doing. But I think first and foremost, you know, we were very, very lucky that Mandarin Oriental wanted to make sure that whatever the strategy was, it was always about our colleagues. There was clearly a lot of, you know, business reasons why we did that as well. 
there's a substantial amount of investment that we'd already made recruiting these colleagues, training them ready for the relaunch. So we actually had to step back and look at the business rationale to do that. How long would that be? That you know, If we made a different decision, how would that be perceived within the local market, first of all? Secondly, if we were to make a decision not to retain our colleagues, what would actually be the financial impact you know, to not retain them and then have to go and rehire them and retrain them? I think what we'll probably hopefully see this year is, you know, better guest engagement scores come through, you know, which if we do that will hopefully drive better average rates within the hotel. I certainly know from the stats that I have to hand that over that time of putting that strategy in place, you know, labour turnover reduced by 11% by all of these things we've put in and, you know, absence levels as well have dropped by 2.2%. So certainly there's a really, really... You know, there's a lot of thought put into making those decisions and making sure the HR strategy, you know, was the right strategy for the business long term. Yesterday, I took my team off site for our annual strategy planning day. And we did the same, you know, the year before. And we go off site and, and we say, OK, you know, what are our strategic goals for the business, for HR and where do we want to be in a year's time? And we put a, a plan together. It, it was so interesting that we, we put that plan together um, part of the conversation yesterday was we have an amazing robust plan for 2019 however I think we've now learned that you know when we do our quarterly reviews we do need to be even more agile because the way that the plan was working was fantastic in 2018 but what it sort of teaches you as a HR professional is just and it, it certainly taught me a lot on reflection is it's just how well the team reacted and just how quickly they could change strategy and put different strategies in place to that change in circumstances. And we were very, very lucky in many ways because we had a really good plan in place and because they understood how to put a plan together and the process that you go through and how that impacts the business. When we, when we had to go again, do it again in June, we, we knew that for. We got a winning formula already that, that we'd done for the last two years to get to where we yeah. were for the opening. So, you know, so we used that as a base. Well, thank yeah. you so much for meeting with us. Mm-hmm. For thank, you for your time. thank you. Time now for our interview. The government has recently begun consulting on extending the legal protections afforded for women against redundancy while they're pregnant. Under the potential new regulations, they're recommending that maternity and parental leave, or MAPLE, regulations be extended to cover a six-month period after a new mother or father returns to work. This could also potentially be applied to others, including men, who return from either adoption leave or shared parental leave. But how is it that maternity discrimination is still such a problem for women returning to work? And do the proposed regulations go far enough? Here to discuss with us is Deb Kahn, author of She's Back, Your Guide to Returning to Work, and co-founder at She's Back Limited, a consultancy that works supporting women back into the workplace. Welcome, Deb. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Emily. So let's launch straight into it. The government is saying they want to build an economy which ensures everyone can progress at work. What are the biggest barriers, do you think, Deb, that to this where women are concerned? How in 2019 is this still such a problem? Are we talking about women coming back from maternity leave specifically? Maternity leave, other caring roles. We know that there are you know, problems where people take career gaps for a number of reasons mm-hmm. and, and coming back. 
Where do we start? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's 2019, but it could be, you know, 1819, quite frankly. <laughs> there are three barriers I see it. One is as soon as somebody takes a break, they start to have a gap on their CV. Yeah. And the recruitment industry, although there are fantastic moves in that sector, is still not set up to deal with gaps in people's CV. It's a problem. And if something is a problem, then it isn't dealt with particularly well. I mean, certainly now you have applicant tracking systems in place to screen CVs. They will often just dismiss a CV. Hmm. So before a woman's CV gets in front of somebody, it's been dismissed. I think that, it, I mean, certainly women whose careers have not gone in straight lines, they need to be interviewed differently. They need to be interviewed on potential. They need to be coached to interview. They need to, you know, really think about how they describe their skills. And that's just not happening enough so that's the first thing the second thing is that you know it, often there are fantastic policies in place but when somebody leaves an organization there is a problem and, yeah. that, and there is a gap and it needs to be filled and that gap will be filled by a hiring manager who mm. needs to fill that gap quite quickly because they have targets mm. and objectives and all these things that make up work so they will put somebody else in there quickly which is often somebody who's at work already yeah so you've got that problem as well you you have another problem which is the women themselves and there is an extraordinary statistic, which is that in a 40-year career, that six months is like 1% to 2% of their time. And when you say but six months, you mean maternity, mater- maternity, maternity leave? Is, yeah. it's, sorry, yeah. it's a proportion yeah, of that. That six months gets blown out of proportion completely on right. both sides by the employers and often by the women themselves. And completely understandably, you know, I have children and those first six months can be just utterly overwhelming. You're exhausted. You can't see how you can even get to get ready anymore, let alone, you know, put your heels on and trot off to work. Yeah. Just none of it makes any sense. So they tend to kind of lose sight of themselves. Okay. And that's that becomes a real problem because what they don't do is keep in touch. They don't keep their networks buoyant. They don't keep their skills up to date. And all of that's, that gets compounded. And then on the other side, employers just, they let them walk out the door. Often, people hire incredibly carefully. They put a lot of effort into those hires. And it just feels really cavalier that what is quite a small proportion of a really valued asset's time is just dismissed like mm. that. So you've got problems on both sides. So yeah. I think those are the kind of key reasons. Yeah, and you're well. absolutely right that maternity discrimination, despite being a very small proportion of any part of a woman's hopefully very long career, it's a tiny thing. But maternity discrimination is a huge problem. We know that one in six employers feel it's acceptable to ask if a woman is pregnant or is planning to have a pregnancy during a hiring process. That's actually illegal, mm-hmm. but they're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time women feel under pressure to disclose if they are pregnant, you know, planning to have children, that sort of thing. And we've seen a lot in the news recently about employers using non-disclosure agreements to silence women who have been fired or been made redundant as the result of like a maternity or a career, you know, issue. It's illegal, but it's, it's still very widely accepted. Now, at She's Back, you do lots of work supporting women returning into the workplace, Mm -hmm. obviously, for a number of reasons. Maternity is part of this. What kind of protections and methods have you seen built into organisations to stop these behaviours from happening? Lots. That's a good news. I just listened to what you said and part of me just wants to scream. It's, Mm. it's, It's utterly unacceptable. But there is so much good practice. And what we're trying to do is spread that good practice. 
and also let organisations know that if they're not doing what other other companies do, then reputation is all and they're behind the curve and they're it, it's hitting the bottom line. So there's a few examples. Would you like me to just rattle off some yeah, examples of what? There was a fantastic one in the Sunday Times last week by Vardegs, who are the big, big law firm specialising in family law. Now that's founded by Aisha Vardig. She's a mum of six. So she's one of those women who, you know, bow down, Aisha. And she's incredibly <laughs> empathetic around the issues faced by women coming back. And what she's done works extremely well for a specific demographic that is very ambitious, career-minded female lawyers. She's adopted what's called a blended approach. She said the problem with maternity leave is it feels like all or nothing. When you come back, you're sort of thrown in. It's a bit binary. And she's adopted what she calls a blended approach. So the lawyers are encouraged to come back as quickly as possible, which sounds a bit pressured, except it isn't, because these are really ambitious women and they're slightly, probably terrified, may arguably, but really keen to, to keep, you know, in touch with clients, aware of legislation. And they can come back, but in any way they want, yeah. half a day, whatever suits them. And she makes, she has other things going on in that firm, which is they have what she calls the Rolls-Royce of childcare up to three years old for your mm. child, breastfeeding facilities in the office, she breastfeeds she makes the office family friendly so it's just a way of, you know, you can do fast track career Might and you can be a really mom. Really interesting what you said there because when before you were speaking and saying, you know, actually some women like to keep in touch and are really proactive and very, very ambitious in that mm. sense so they, they want to keep in touch and they're happy to do that but actually when we say maternity leave or when we talk about motherhood, it seems like there's a well it's mothers, you just kind of everyone's lumped together, whereas actually some people want to might want to take it differently and they might want to return in different ways so how do you do that across different sectors exactly exactly and people's experience of motherhood you're absolutely right is is very personal depending on your child and you and your health and your family context and the support you mm. have and there's all these other factors and the the example i've just gave vardix i mean there mm. was there has been a reaction to that saying so i feel terribly pressurized we right. said but that is for one particular group of women and it suits them equally absolutely i think i think the response to that is that we have a sort of tempo point plan for managers and we've cross-checked all of them with these are things that other firms are doing and the number one is is be really open mm -hmm. and don't make assumptions about people that they yeah. might want to come back they may want to stay in touch have the conversation and yeah. try and have that conversation before people leave some people want to come back and be right on a career track other mm -hmm. people say quite frankly I want to you know have absolutely no contact whatsoever when I'm ready to have the discussion I may need to tread water for yeah. a while and that's absolutely fine so the first thing is have a very open conversation yeah. where you're prepared to listen and mm. not make assumptions it's having a policy isn't it but also keeping that policy flexible to exactly. account for everybody exactly and also I, I've certainly spoken to women when they're pregnant and they say I will be back in three yeah. months and I go yeah good luck with that one yeah. um, <laughs> why don't you see how you feel and stay open yeah and see what's going on you may have a child who doesn't sleep yes you may have postnatal depression all these things are normal they're normal and we should talk about them and um, that's a yeah. great thing because you know i think i guess what a, a pushback you might get from an employer is to say well i can't afford to run a high octane childcare service you know in that way i can't mm -hmm. afford to provide breastfeeding facilities now whether that's true or not mm. communication 
being able to talk, every organisation can afford to do that. That's not something that has a financial tag to it. So while there are some things that some organisations might say they are not able to accommodate, like childcare facilities, etc. If you can have those basic foundations of being able to have a conversation around these things, break down the stigmas around them and have a fresh approach to them, that is kind of incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And I, there is zero cost to having a supportive one-to-one with your line manager where they take the time to value you, mm. to ask questions, to just start to explore thinking together about how you're going to check in. That has no cost, but it will pay dividends. Mm. The other thing which is a zero cost approach is assigning a new mum a buddy or a mentor, someone who's come through the other side. You know, someone who knows that feeling of I've had to leave my child with a childminder and they're crying and that sort of, you know, really kind of gut-wrenching thing that women go through and that the terrible guilt of having to not send an email or attend a networking event because you have to leg it home to be Mm. there in time to pick up. Having a buddy, again, that's a no-cost option. And and it's a lovely thing to take part in as well, to encourage and support that talent. It seems to like bridge that gap. You know, we're talking about it seems like this cliff edge where you go on to maternity leave and then it's very overwhelming and that kind of thing. And then you can go back to work and just think... I've been completely out of it. But actually, it seems like a thread across that time. Exactly. And and certainly our experience, we're talking to a, a range of women across organized, different organisations from different sectors in our network, some of the stories we've heard, they come back and everything has changed. They feel like it's a new job. They've had their clients taken away from them. They, you know, they've lost those relationships. The team has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked with a senior manager at Google. She said they'd brought in three new products. Yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, you're not just dealing yeah. with maybe two kids and being utterly exhausted. You're then dealing with having to run to get up to speed, to get back to where mm-hmm. you are. There's one immediate thing I want to recommend as well. And on both sides, it's, it's having a really open conversation about the detail yes. as well so that you start to think about the job spec what does that role look like if you've negotiated flexibility brilliant but what exactly will that mean to the role what will the hours look like how will you be judged what are your metrics because they won't be the same as before and and how will things like remote working use of technology use of fantastic tech that's there to facilitate collaborative working like slack like google mm. drive all of that sort of thing How will all of that be set up? For me, it comes down to what does good look like for that person coming back? See that six months as a transition. Mm. See it as a kind of way of, not as a kind of baptism by fire, not as, oh, I've got to make it work, because it's going to be bumpy. Yeah. But see it as a test period where you're just exploring. Mm -hmm. This person was great. They will continue to be great. Yeah. They will just need to find their feet on both sides. And it would be great if organisations were broadly that open-minded and if lots of them were willing to be having those conversations. Unfortunately, as we know, lots of them are not in that place yet. We haven't yet seen this shift in attitude around career breaks and around specifically maternity career breaks. In terms of to bring it back round to this um, proposal to extend the maternity um, redundancy process, do you think this is going to do enough to actually protect new mothers from being made redundant or is it just going to kind of delay an inevitable redundancy if more isn't done to change attitudes as well? I I think it's the latter. I think, you know, given what you said at the start of this conversation, you know, when there are NDAs being signed, sadly, until we reframe and we start to be more empathetic about something which affects pretty much 
all of us, either it's a colleague or your partner or your sister. It's until we start to have conversations around that, women will continue to be, quite frankly, thrown on the scrappy. One of the things we say to people is think of the investment. Think of the investment in that person. They, They walk out the door with all of that capital, that social capital, that intellectual capital. So I think that attitude shift, and it is happening. It absolutely, mm. there's enough of it happening in big enough organisations and people are celebrating it. There's some fantastic work going on at places like Deloitte, at PwC, in the law sector. The work that Lisa, my co-author, is doing with Reignite Academy, getting women back into law. There is enough going on at those kind of high-level organisations for it to be kind of starting to make waves and starting to make news. And as soon as it starts getting into... Publications like yours, I think people will want to get on the bandwagon. So off the back of that, I guess, if we see an employer behaving badly or kind of not being as open-minded as we, we would have liked, what how can we challenge that? What can be done to challenge that behaviour? It's a great question and it's a tough one. I mean, I, we at She's Back are, are anti kind of finger pointing. Mm. And I think calling out, unless it's done, if there is a culture of calling out, then it's very hard. It's very hard to do without it, without people feeling it's defensive. I think the easiest way is to try to find examples where that problem has been dealt with positively. Mm. Use an example. Use an example from their competitor, if you can. There is nothing. Or suggest, you know, use very simple techniques like the impact of that behaviour is. When you do that, the impact of it is X. And I'm not sure that was your intention. Keep it really, really concise, really simple. And thinking about the messages, it's sending right across the organisation to the younger women who are going to be looking at, well, if that's the way I'm going to be treated, is there a career for me in this organisation? I think you have to talk about potential impact and unintended consequences of that sort of behaviour as well. And I think putting the onus on the women is just too much. They're feeling too vulnerable because of all the reasons we've spoken to. And often they're just exhausted and then being brave enough to have that conversation. And I think that prompted my first question of should the onus be on women to keep in touch with clients and to keep in touch with their workmates? You know, on the one hand... Yeah, that's obviously a great thing to do. And if people feel like that's something that they want to do. But on the other hand, they shouldn't feel like they have to absolutely cling on to the wrong career alone. You know, it should be a two way street. Exactly. And there's some women who see that maternity is an opportunity to really rethink and say, actually, that wasn't the right place for me. And it's often a time when women start to, you know, reframe their working lives Mm. and what they're doing and why they're doing it and Mm. the purpose behind it. It's so, again, case by case. I I ran my own business. You know, I've built up my business since 1998. I I didn't feel there was a choice. I felt if I didn't stay in touch with clients on some level, Mm. I would disappear and invariably a man would get my work. (laughs) So, you know, but I kept it incredibly light touch. I mean, it was a one line email. How's it going? Have a happy Christmas. That's. I just felt I just needed yeah. to stay front of mind. I think the hardest thing is when women have those clients taken away from them and they haven't had a say in it. So again, it's back to the conversation. It's back to that transparency of communication. Something I've been seeing a lot of, particularly over the last 12 months with the onset of gender pay reporting, is organisations implementing strategies like shared parental leave, boosted paternity pay, Mm. longer periods of paternity leave. Do you think that moves like that could be enough to start levelling the playing field when it comes to attitudes around returners? Or is it going to kind of be a longer term thing? I think it'll be a longer term thing. They're all moving in the right direction and they can't help. We've had parental leave, we've had shared parental leave for five years. 
the needle hasn't shifted much in that time. Like, brutally, if you, you know, it comes down to stats and data. I mean, it's actually heartbreaking when you see that we're going backwards. I think really, really reframing this conversation and education, not just education about the business case, education about social justice, about, mm. you know, equality. It's, it's a humanitarian issue. And as more younger women as well start to feel they have a voice across all lots of different levels, I think definitely we're seeing these younger women saying, quite frankly, that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. I think it's the change is going to be driven by younger younger women and younger men, definitely, who who want a more flexible and more blended approach to life, who are not prepared to go in at 22, nose down, you know, head down until whatever it is, 66, 67, sure. 68. Yeah, think, you know, they're not prepared to take the burnout and the exhaustion. I think it's and the interesting as well, like what you were saying issues. at the beginning of people, our employers see a gap in a CV and that's seen as a, what, what, why, is, yeah. why is this gap? But actually it seems like as our concept of work changes and as we work differently, maybe it's not going to be a case of this black and white CV anymore. Maybe we are going to start thinking about careers differently over time. Exactly. And as people take on portfolio careers and job turnover grows rapid, that the ability to read a CV, which isn't as linear and isn't as straightforward, I think will be critical to attracting the right talent. You know, we see some phenomenal women, you know, we meet them on paper. They look slightly worrying, you know, and then you meet them and their skills and what impact they could have. Is, is extraordinary and we've been able to match some of those women up with organisation who've welcomed them with open arms but it's been able to kind of from women and men's side explain what your skills are mm-hmm. and the impact of those skills rather than I had this job for this length yeah. therefore I am the right round peg for this yes. round hole talk about what value you bring stop talking about I can only do three days say I can do from Wednesday to Friday, and this is what I will deliver yes, in that yeah. time. So start, you know, I think that's the key to it. But you're right. However, if we've got 80 people applying for one job, as you have in big firms, how do they then have the resources to not look at each CV properly? Yeah. yeah. So quick fire, last question. Give us your top line positive actions that we can take to start the changing these attitudes. For employers. For employers. Train your line managers. It doesn't have to be laborious. They're the ones who matter. They're the one, you know, to have these conversations, to keep them open, to really understand the impact that their actions take on this woman. That That's number one. Number two, make flexible working a reality. Set it up properly. Judge people by, by results. Think about how that impacts bonus, direct reports, that sort of thing. Number three is start recruiting for potential. Definitely. Fantastic. Deb, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. That was great. And finally, the man of the moment is back. He is the Indiana Jones to your H artifacts. It's oh, my whole body they just shriveled get off. worse every month. It's Tim Pointer. Hi Tim. Good day. How are you doing? Did you enjoy that one? Terrible, but, but good at the same time. Yes, it's a case of like you know, as the as the dad here, I'm you know that's, that's like a dad joke that yeah. I would be very proud of. <laughs> um, well, um, we are straight back in. It's the new year. People are 
looking around for jobs. They're looking mm. forward to bettering themselves. And so we've got a dilemma from a reader who is feeling the strain a little bit. So they have written into us and they have said, Hi, Tim, I'm hoping to get a promotion and I want to put my best foot forward at work to better my chances. But my whole team usually works through lunch and I find myself feeling pressured to do the same to show that I'm not slacking off. Likewise, I often feel I have to stay late. I've got mental health issues, so it's important for me to keep balance between my work and my rest of the life. But I fear if I don't keep it up, my chances might diminish. What would you recommend for this person? Oh, I feel really sad reading this. Yeah. Just like hear it, hearing that, you just immediately feel for the person. And it's, you know, why would you be put in a situation where you have to compromise your own health? Mm. And... I've got a really weird image in my head, so you're going to have to bear with me. But I've got that fantastic lithograph by um, Maritz Escher. It's the ascending and descending one. He's a, yeah. you know, a brilliant drawing of the never-ending staircase. So it go ra- goes yes. around the castle, yeah. yeah? You see it in your head. Mm-hmm. And every step you take, you think you're going up, you think you're going down, but actually you're just going around in a circle the whole time. And that's how I felt hearing these words because... I feel that if he or she makes this commitment, they're going to get stuck on this never-ending staircase of not being themselves, mm. not looking after themselves, and therefore not getting the best out of themselves, which is no good for no good for them, no good for the job, no good for their colleagues, no mm. good for their employer. And, you know, it, it just really saddened me that someone would sort of be put in a situation where they're putting themselves in that mm. never-ending staircase of faking of course, not being who they are. And you can be working long hours without producing good work. Absolutely. As well, just because you're yeah. staying in the office really late doesn't mean that you're producing stuff that's a high standard. You can be going along at 30%. Mm-hmm. It's the classic of we're measuring inputs, not outputs. We're measuring time served rather than what's being achieved. And if we feel that that's how, how we're being valued, and if she, t- you know, she or he tests that hypothesis, and actually they are valuing the team in terms of the hours that they put in, then frankly, you're better than this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere else. Because you will achieve more if you go and take a walk, if you have a conversation, if you go and enjoy your lunch rather <laughs> than worrying about the crumbs going into your keyboard. Yes. <laughs> and you'll be much more productive in the afternoon. I was wrestling with something last night and, you know, you know, you know when you have that end of the day and it's all going round in your head and you think, oh, I'm not sure I can find a way through this. Mm. You know, I woke up this morning and my brain had been working it through for me very kindly and then I woke <laughs> up and it presented me with an idea and I was like, yeah. that's a really good way forward. It's, we do, I think, we are moving increasingly into a workplace at the moment where we don't feel that we can take time off and that sort of thing. And I think it's so important to mm. reinforce that you should just step back if you feel like you are struggling, if you feel like you're under pressure, there's a reason for that. Your body, you know, it doesn't give you these stress signals for no reason. So would you say the first step in this is going to the manager and saying, this is how I feel and just seeing what happens? Have a conversation and explain, I am at my best when? Because then it's it's all about the work. It's all about the productivity. It's all about the output and have an output-led conversation because sometimes we immediately go into the sort of what I need and that can feel like quite a, you know, that that's a more difficult conversation to have. But if we start with, do you know, I'm at my best when and you lay out that, then it's like, oh, I see. So to get the best out of you, if I'm a half-decent manager, I want to get the best out of my team and therefore you're giving me a way to work with you in the, in, in the most productive way. Thank you for that. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. Our thanks to John Dawson, Deb Kahn, and of course, Tim Pointer. 
You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Go ahead and rate us. We'd love to see your comments. My name is Emily Burt. I'm Lauren Brown. And the producer was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. We will see you next month.